All right, Emmaus, if you would take your Bible and turn to the book of Ruth, in the Old Testament, you get not very far into the Old Testament, you get past what's sometimes called the law, the first five books, and then you get Joshua, Judges, and then you get to the story of Ruth. And we're going to spend the next five weeks looking at the story of Ruth in the Old Testament, and I have been so energized and reinvigorated through studying through Ruth chapter 1, especially this past week, and the way that God has shaped this incredible story. I, I hope that over the next few weeks, if you don't have a consistent plan for reading the Bible, if you have something you do on a regular basis to read Scripture, keep going. If you want to add this on, you can. But if you don't have a plan for reading Scripture, here's something I would encourage you to do over the next four or five weeks. Ruth has four chapters, so Monday through Thursday, read one chapter of Ruth each day. So you're reading the book of Ruth throughout the week, and you get it four or five times uh, over, the, over the coming weeks. And then the fifth day of your reading plan, maybe Friday if you need to make up on Saturday, read Romans chapter 8. This plan is on your bulletin. If you turn your bulletin over to the back, you'll see a place for some notes and kind of an outline of what we're doing. And I, I put in there a little idea for a reading plan, and so... Each week, you're reading the book of Ruth, and then once per week, you're reading Romans chapter 8, which ties in so well with the book of Ruth. Kids, this is a plan you can do. The, the story of Ruth is one you've probably heard along the way. Your parents can help you with this reading plan, but if you don't have a way that you read through Scripture, let me encourage you to do that um, in, in the coming weeks. This morning, as we look at the, booth of, the book of Ruth, it's going to be really helpful if in your mind... You're thinking about maybe a challenge that you're facing or something painful that is going on in your life or your family, the world around you, because the book of Ruth is going to speak right, right into the middle of that story. What we're going to do over the next several weeks is we've devised an outline which follows the pattern of God's work in our life from what we're calling providence through redemption, sanctification, glorification. Okay, $400 words, don't worry about those words in particular, but if you'll look again at our three circles that we go back to continuously to think about how do we understand Scripture, how do we understand God's work of salvation, let me put it to you this way. In the top left, you have the idea of God's design. This morning, we're going to talk about the word providence. Along with that word, you could put sovereignty, power, control. The world exists by God's power and for God's purposes. He's in control. He's all-powerful. He's worthy of worship, and so he is in control. So you see God's design, but we realize when things move away from God's design, when sin happens, it leads to brokenness, and it leads to death, and you're going to see examples this morning in the book of Ruth of that brokenness and death, but God brings redemption and next week in the book of Ruth, we're going to talk about that redemption through the idea of the kinsman redeemer that you see in the book of Ruth. And then when God redeems his people through the gospel, we're talking about God and the gospel in the book of Ruth. When God redeems his people through the gospel, then he leads them to recover and pursue his design for their lives, which sometimes we call sanctification or holiness how does God do that work through the gospel to transform our lives? So we're going to spend a couple of weeks looking at that. 
And then what does it look like for God to bring his plans always back to his purposes? He always brings things back to the purposes he has, ultimately bringing everything to his glory. And that last week, we're going to see how the book of Ruth points so clearly to God's purposes in Christ and for all of eternity. So that's the plan. I want you to know we're going to take the book of Ruth and we want to go through these circles. We want to go through this pattern of God's providence, his rescue or redemption, his sanctification, his work in your life for holiness, and then God's purposes for bringing everything to perfect completion. Okay, so, so that's the game plan. That's what we're aiming for. To that end, let me pray for us to focus my heart and my mind, and then we're just going straight into verse 1. So here we go. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of what it means to gather together in the name of Jesus. God, I pray that you would use these next few weeks in the book of Ruth, that you would use them in our church, you would use them in our lives. God, if we've grown lazy or unpurposeful in reading scripture, God, that you would use this to bring us back to the power and beauty of your word as we read through Ruth, as we think about the hope and the majesty of Romans chapter 8 and what you teach us there. God, you would bring all those things together. God, guide us this morning as we study scripture. Guide us in a few minutes as we worship through the taking of the Lord's Supper. God, open our hearts, open our minds to what you want to do in and through us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's jump in. Verse 1. The first phrase there in verse 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled. We've went through the book of Joshua here at Emmaus. We studied the book of Judges on Wednesday night on purpose to prepare us to get to this study of, of Ruth. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, why is that so important? Why does that, does that matter so much for, for our study? The time when the judges ruled, the very last verse in the book of Judges says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If you're summarizing the book of Judges and the time that Ruth was written, it's summarized by everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's a time of moral and spiritual upheaval. There's no one in control. There's no king in the land. And so what is being done from the very beginning here is the author is setting the stage to tell you the context is one of spiritual chaos, moral chaos, all kinds of pain and destruction in the land. The book of Ruth is meant to contrast that. When you think about the book of Judges, think about the Wild West. <laughs> Out of control, everyone does what they want. The book of Ruth is set in more of a pastoral farming situation. On purpose. When you read your Bible, you're supposed to see judges, chaos, out of control, wild west. Then immediately after you get the book of Ruth, there's a sense of calm. There's a sense of farming. There's a sense of, okay, things are a little bit more under control. And it's designed to make us ask why. Why the contrast between judges and, and Ruth? And also... In, in the Bible, the way it's laid out, not necessarily the, the old Hebrew Bible, but the way it's laid out in the Christian Bible, you go from Judges to Ruth to 1 Samuel, where you're going to find the establishment 
of the kingdom. Remember, Judges ends, in those days there was no king. Ruth, spoiler alert, is going to end with a reference to a coming king. First Samuel is going to pick up with the establishment of a kingdom. And so Ruth is purposely a bridge or a connection between Judges to First Samuel and the establishment of the kingdom. So, so God's doing things here in the time of the Judges. Look back at verse 1. We'll jump to that next slide. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. This particular phrasing here where it says there was a famine in the land shows up just a couple of other times in in Scripture. You find it in Genesis chapter 12 where Abram was called into the land, into the promised land, and then almost immediately leaves because of a famine and goes down to Egypt Uh, where, unfortunately, he portrays his wife as a sister, and there's all this chaos that's surrounding that. Then you turn around. Isaac does the exact same thing in Genesis chapter 26. He goes to a different location, but turns around and portrays his wife as a sister, and there's a sense of confusion around this situation, but God continues to work. Probably the most famous famine, though, for the people going to another land. Kids, this is the story of Joseph that you guys know from from the Old Testament where the people are sent ultimately down into Egypt where Joseph already is. There was a famine and so Joseph was already in Egypt but his family comes down and God uses that situation to bring restoration and bring salvation. So when you're reading your Bible and you get to the book of Ruth and it says there was a famine in the land immediately the people who heard this story would have connected back to, oh yeah, we saw that happen in Genesis. This is not the first time this has happened. We have a pattern that's been built up to this point. But don't miss this. Here, remember, we're in the time of the judges. There's moral chaos. There's spiritual chaos. When you see there was a famine, Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, When God is laying out the blessings and curses for his people, he tells them, if you rebel against my law, if you break this covenant, one of the results will be what? Famine. The famine here would have been obviously connected to the time of the judges when the people were living in chaos, when they were living in rebellion against God. Part of the famine might have been caused by their rebellion. There was so much chaos in the land that the land was being torn up and there wasn't food available. Equally so, it was, could just be a famine that the Lord had sent in response to their sinfulness. So there's emptiness. There's famine in the land. What happens as a result of it? Middle of verse 1. It says, There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Okay, quick Quick comment right here. We're going to be careful. I'm going to do my best to be careful through here to not be too hard on certain characters in the story because we need to see everything that they're facing. But what you have is you have a famine, and there's a man living in Bethlehem, the house of bread. He is living in the house of bread. Yes, there's famine, but he's living in this location in Bethlehem in Judah, and he goes to sojourn. He goes to live for a short time in the country of of Moab. Now, Moab got started as a people 
when Lot, earlier in the New Testament, in the book of Genesis, uh, how do you say this, has an incestuous relationship? Uh, don't worry about that word if you don't know it, because it means you don't need to know it. Uh, um, he has an in- unfortunate relationship that leads to the people being established. This is the same people where King Balak sends uh, people against Balaam. you got the whole Balaam's donkey story. Same group of people involved. As the people of Israel were wandering through the wilderness, uh, the men of Israel had eyes for the women of Moab and vice versa, and you have all kinds of inappropriate sexual relationships happening at that time. They're just about to get to the promised land, and the Moab king attacks them. This is not a people that the Israelites have a good relationship with, and, and definitely not one that they need to be spending a lot of time with. And what does this man do? He leaves the house of bread, and he goes to their enemy to sojourn there. Now, like I said, we're not going to be too hard on him, because you see other places in the Old Testament that people would do this, and they're not condemned for it. But watch what happens when he gets there. Verse 2. Watch what happens when he gets there. It says, The name of the man was Elimelech. Elimelech has the idea of God is keen. How, how ironic is that? God is keen, and he's left the land where God is keen, and he's gone to a foreign king. So this is not a good sign for him. Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. The word Naomi means pleasant or good or beautiful. It's it's a positive word. It's something that she would have cherished here. Elimelech and Naomi, and they have two sons, Malon and Kilion. There's a little bit of controversy about the meaning of their names, but they're not positive, okay? Malon, so the parents, God is keen and beautiful. Dad's God is keen. Mom is beautiful. The sons, most likely their names mean something like sickly and failure. Woo, that's awesome. Like, really. God is keen, Dad. Beautiful, Mom. The apple fell a long way from the tree. Like, uh, this is not good. These are negative names, but it's a preview in a sense. What's happening here, it's a preview in a sense of the pain that's about to come into to the family here. Malon and Kilion, they were Ephrathites, should practice that more, from Bethlehem in Judah. So this family is going to matter here in a minute a lot. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Okay. Not making a mountain out of a molehill, but watch this. They were supposed to be sojourning, meaning they were supposed to travel around for a little while while the famine's happening. What happens at the end of verse 2? It says they remain there. Our first sign that their heart was probably not in the right place. They were supposed to go get temporary relief, find some food, and come back home. They got there and said, hey, let's just stay here. Small spiritual connection. We can't spend too much time here here. How often do we go from a little bit of involvement in a sinful situation, a little bit of involvement in sin, and before you know you just sat down there. You justified it, and then you set up camp there. I was going to just spend a little time there. Before I knew it, I just remained there. I just sat down in the middle of it. Seemingly, that's what's happened in this situation. Verse 3. Verse 3. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. Group pain, social pain, has now become personal pain. It's one thing when everybody else around you is hurting. It's another thing when you're hurting. The pain was 
everywhere, now it's personal for her. She's lost her husband. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Okay? What happens then? Verse 4. They took Moabite wives. Oh. Now, there's a little bit of controversy about how sinful this action is, but let's just be honest and say it was not ideal. That here they are, they, they place themselves in a country that represents everything against their God, their place, and now they've taken on Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, not Oprah. I know you glanced at your Bible and thought Oprah. Not Oprah. Her name was Orpah. The name Orpah in this language is a little tricky. On There's some controversy about the meaning. It has something to do with the neck. It either means stiff-necked or... In some cultures, the neck is, um, is a sign of beauty or, or a sign of personal prestige. And so the name is something to do with the neck, probably has to do with stiff neck, but maybe it was a beautiful stiff neck. Some stiff neck people are beautiful, maybe they go together, I don't know. But that's the idea here. So the name of one of the wives was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. Ruth is connected to the word for friend, which is such a beautiful idea in this book, that it's connected to the idea of the word for, for friend. They lived there about 10 years, verse 5, and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. We can't fathom in our culture what a bad situation Naomi is in at this place. She's in a foreign country. She's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. She has nowhere to turn. There's nothing to fall back on at this, at this time. To be a widow in the ancient world was to be in a very precarious situation. To be a widow without kids was to be an extremely precarious situation. Naomi is in a foreign country, and she's in a bad place. Verse 6. So then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. Okay, if you're a Bible highlighter, Bible underliner, the word return here is, is really important. I'm going to try on the screen to highlight or point out every time the word return shows up in chapter 1 because it is all over the place. It's, it's a word that just comes back to, it's, it's a basic word, but the author comes back to it over and over again in a very purposeful way because return is going to be the theme of, of the book, even to the point of chapter 4, that, that God is going to be the returner of life to his people. So the word return is very purposeful in this story. So they're going to return from the country of Moab, for she heard in the fields of Moab, the word had gotten there, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Surprisingly, in the book of Ruth, the Lord doesn't show up very often. His, his work is often behind the scenes in a way that's not established. But here's the first time that, that the Lord, Yahweh, covenant name for God, is given. And what is he doing? He's visiting his people, he's present with them, and he's providing for them. This is going to be really important when we see the way that Naomi understands God sometimes in the story. Because right here, in the middle of their greatest pain... God is present with them, and he is compassionately providing for them the first time he shows up in the story. Verse 7. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return. <laughs> okay, so they're, they're walking back to Judah, 
And Naomi says, no, no, turn and return to your country. Go return each of you to her mother's house. Go and start over. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Okay? Pay attention to that phrase, the Lord has dealt kindly with you. Naomi's going to have a very hard time finding God's kindness for her, but she does see it for other people. Okay? Watch that because sometimes that happens in your own heart. You see the good that God does for others, but you can't see the good that God does in your own life. You overlook it because of what's going on. Naomi's going to struggle with that at, at times here. Verse 9, may the Lord grant that you find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. The word rest there probably means security, that you would find another marriage, that you would go back and be able to start over with a fresh marriage here. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return, there's the word again, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Now at this point, the donkeys are dizzy. Like, they're just, they're just doing circles in the wilderness. Because half the time they're returning to Judah, half the time they're returning back to Moab, then they're going to go to Judah. It's like some of us when you're trying to order fast food. Like, you don't know what you want, and you're stuck in the middle trying to make up your mind looking at the pictures. So it's just, they're just going in circles in the desert here. What's going to happen? She says in verse 11, watch this, it's really interesting. Turn back my daughters. What does she refer to them up to this place? her daughters-in-law. But now, as the situation is bearing down on her, now they're her daughters. Uh, I'll leave it to you to make the spiritual application of when you transition from daughter-in-law to daughter um, in, in your family. But, but she has made that transition. Now, now they're not just her daughters-in-law. Now they're her daughters. She's feeling the weight of this situation. Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, you may be, that they may become your husbands. Verse 12, turn back. Return, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I, should have, if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Okay, what do we know about the Lord up to this point in the story? He shows up in verse 6 in the middle of difficulty, and he's present with the people, and he's providing for the people. Naomi says, the Lord, may he deal kindly with you as you've dealt with me, but then she gets to talking about herself here in verse 13, and she says, No, it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She's feeling the weight. She's personalizing very much what's happening here. So verse 14, They lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Okay, right there in verse 14, the word clun is the word that shows up in Genesis 2.24 when it says that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold tight to his wife, cleave to his wife. The first reference in the Bible you get to this is in a ceremony or an idea having to do with marriage that you're clinging to, that you're holding tight to. Ruth 
is doing the same thing with Naomi. She is holding tight to her in the same way that mirrors Genesis 2.24. So verse 15, Naomi says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return, there's the word again, return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Now, there's a little bit of controversy. When Christians need controversy and make it up in weird ways, this is one of the places it shows up where sometimes you'll hear these verses read at, er, not at funerals, good night, at at weddings, and uh, it'll be this really beautiful thing, and then somebody will come along and say, yeah, they took those verses out of context. It really doesn't have to do with the wedding. You shouldn't read those verses at a wedding. Well, we just saw where there's already marriage imagery from Ruth cleaning to Naomi, so it's Let's not make up controversies where they're really not necessary, but you'll hear these verses sometimes read at weddings. The part that I would want you to focus on is your people shall be my people and your God my God. Let me ask you, what has Ruth seen of Naomi's God up to this point? A lot of difficulty, a lot of pain. She's seen Naomi calling out about the hand of the Lord being against her, about the difficulty that they're facing. But you know there's a good chance that she's also heard the stories of how God has provided for his people. And there's almost a certain chance that her husband would have told her the stories going back to how God rescued his people and provided for his people. And here's this interesting reminder. Sometimes... Sometimes someone new to faith is able to see God's work even more clearly than someone who's been sitting in the middle of it for a long time. Sometimes what we need as a church is we need people who come in with fresh eyes and say to us, no, 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 you don't understand how great your God really is. You've grown jaded or you've grown blind to it or you're just not seeing clearly right now how good your God is. This is why it's so important to study Scripture with people whose Scripture is fresh for. And this is why it's so important for a church that we constantly have people coming to faith in Christ because if we're not careful, we just sit in the middle of it after a while and we miss how great our God is, what it means for him to rescue, what it means for him to provide. And right here, Ruth, the foreigner who's lost her husband, who's clinging to Naomi's God, is seen more clearly than even Naomi is about how good God is and how she wants to hold tight to this. Verse 17, where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. You know what she's doing in verse 17? There's no turning back. She's not saying when you die, I'm going back to Moab. She's saying, no, I'm going with your God no matter where this takes me. And if you die, I'm still sticking with him. I'm still going to your people because this is how greatly I'm holding on to who he is and what he does. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Sometimes people are just going to do what they're going to do. And Naomi says, I can't fight this anymore. Let's do it. So verse 19, look what happens. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. What's Bethlehem? 
house of bread. So they have returned back to the place they left from. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The word Mara is the word for bitterness, difficulty, pain. Verse 21, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. So the word full in Hebrew is the word mala. She says, I left here, I was mala. I was full. But as I come back, I'm mara. I'm bitter. This one change of letter, she's saying, I was full, now I'm empty. I left looking for food. I come back not even having family, not even having that stability. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So look at verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned, twice we get the word return, returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem, at the beginning of barley harvest. Check out that part. They left what was going on. Famine. Had no food. Went to seek out food. What happens when they come back? The word harvest. She leaves with family to go find food. She returns with Ruth to this land full of food. This incredible harvest that the Lord has laid out there for us. The way that these verses book in the book of Ruth. Look at this screen. I put the verses up there so you could see kind of verse 1 and verse 22. Verse 1, in the day when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land, and so they went to sojourn in the country of Moab. 22, they've returned from Moab, and now she's bringing Ruth with her, and they've come to Bethlehem, and it's at the time of the barley harvest. So that's Ruth chapter 1. The Lord isn't referred to very many times, but it's obvious in all of this that he's in control. What I want to do for you, I want to draw four things from Ruth 1 that let us know how God and the gospel is at work here, that lets you see God's providence. On your notes, if you got a copy of the bulletin as you came in, I want to show you four things that I hope would God would use in your life from this incredible chapter that's put, and put together. Number one, God is active in the pain and emptiness. We're prone to say, we're prone to say, if things are going well, if we're being blessed, if life is good, there's not a lot of pain, not a lot of difficulty, man, God's at work right now. Look at all the things God is doing. To quote the psalm from the last couple of years, God's on the move. Look at, look at all he's doing. Can I remind you that even when life is difficult, even when you're facing pain and famine and hardship, God is still active and God is still in control. Just because life is not going in the way you expected or the way that you would want it to go, God is still active and God is still in control. We serve a God who comes to us in our time of pain. What did we see in verse 6 earlier? That he came to the people. He visited them and provided for them when they needed it the most. God works in unlikely places 
Moab, unlikely people, the Moabites, Ruth, unlikely ways through their difficulty, through their pain, unlikely times in the time of the judges. God may not work in your life the way that you expect, the way you want. Just because everything's not going perfectly now does not mean that God has abandoned you. It does not mean that somehow God is not at work for his glory and your good. Now, in the story, we see this showing up. If you guys would jump ahead one more screen real quickly here. Um, oh, wait. Sorry. My bad. Jump back a screen. I messed that up. What we see here, several ways that the Lord is, is working in the middle of. We know that they're facing death. That Naomi and Ruth are both widows. Um, on, your, on your notes, on your bulletin there, I put a website that I ran into this last week. I say I ran into it. My wife, my wife sent it to me. It's called A Widow's Might, playing on the word might, M-I-G-H-T, instead of M-I-T-E from that story in the New Testament, awidowsmight.org. Some wonderful resources on there. If you're facing the loss of a spouse, who do you turn to? How do you respond? How does the church respond in the middle of that pain? The other thing that sometimes gets lost in this story is by all indications, by all indications, Ruth is dealing with barrenness, or we might even say infertility in this situation. We don't know all the details, obviously, but we know that Ruth was married for a while in Moab, and she's returning without children, which would be very surprising in in this situation, in this culture. And so how do we respond in the midst of someone's pain when they've lost a spouse, when they can't have children? when they've lost a child the way that Naomi has in the situation, when they're facing famine or difficulty or pain. We respond the way the Lord responds. We remain active. We remain present. We go to people in their times of pain and say, I care for you. Sometimes when situations are happening in someone's life, and and those of you who are walking through this pain can help us understand this more, but when there's a loss of spouse, loss of child, infertility, terrible economic depression in your family, sometimes people just don't know what to say. And so either they say something dumb, not on purpose, they just don't know what to say, and so they want to say something, or they back away out of embarrassment sometimes, confusion, just not knowing what to do. What we see in this story, what we're reminded of is though, is God is active and he's at work even in these situations. And so I want to remind you, you may be in a situation where you think, well, God's not at work in my life right now. If this was happening, God couldn't be at work. Oh, yes, he is. He is absolutely at work in what you're facing right now, which takes us to number two. Number two, God is patient with our struggles. We're going to be very careful how we treat Naomi in this story um, because she struggles. She's, she's facing incredible pain. She says some things that probably don't capture fully how God's at work in her life, but she is hurting deeply. And when people are hurting deeply, sometimes every phrase they say is not theologically accurate. And sometimes when people are hurting, they just need a way to cry out to the Lord and if we're not careful, we come along someone who's hurting, and we want to fix all their language, fix all their problems, help them get everything exactly right. In that moment, they may just need us to be patient with them. 
to be present with them, to care with them. Look at these next screens I jumped to early, earlier. Look at what Naomi's facing. She says, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Naomi does what we all do in these type of situations. She exaggerates her hopelessness. Something difficult happens in our life. Something, something very hard happens in our life or lives of people around us. And if we're not careful, we exaggerate or escalate an already difficult situation. She doesn't pray for a miracle. She forgets the law which is provided for an opportunity for kinsman redeemer that we're going to learn about yesterday. She never prays for a miracle. She forgets the hope of the law. And on top of that, she can't imagine that someone would care enough about her just to want to be with her through this difficult situation. And so she just tries to push everybody away. If you are facing pain, if you are facing suffering and grief, be very careful that we don't end up exaggerating the hopelessness beyond what God wants to do in your life. There may be someone who really does care for you and they want to be there for you and, and you're prone to push them away. You may have forgotten a way that God wants to work in your life and you just can't see it clearly right now because you're clouded by all this pain and suffering. God is incredibly patient with our struggles. We want to be patient with others. She says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. You've got to appreciate to some degree that Naomi doesn't have this gross, sentimental, sappy form of religion that God's just doing the best that he can. He really can't deal with anything, and so we're just all. It's not Hallmark Christianity. This is not what she's facing. She has a very deep understanding of God's power and sovereignty and control. She just can't grasp that he also loves her and what's good for her, and is going to take care of the situation. You know, we always go to extremes. <laughs> you, you find yourself going to one extreme or the other. Either everything's going to be perfect, and if God really loved me, I'd be healthy, wealthy, and wise, to the other extreme of God's always out to get me. He doesn't care for me. All he wants is that I'm going to face the suffering, and so I'll just have to deal with it as it comes. In the middle is a world of suffering where God is with us. And he does love us, and he is working. Look in verse 20. What does she say? She says, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Sometimes in our pain and suffering and grief, we try to change our identity. She tries to change her identity from good and pleasant because she can't imagine that what she's facing now is good and pleasant. And so she changes her name to Mara, bitter. Here's one of the coolest things in the book of Ruth. She is never called Mara from this point forward. God will not let her sit in this false identity. I'm worthless. I'm a failure. I'm no good. God can never, these things that we say to ourselves in the middle of that pain and that suffering, and we, we start to individualize and internalize this pain, and we start to say this, and God says, no, 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 no. I will not let you rename yourself. I am the one who gives your identity. And it is in Christ, and you have hope that goes beyond any of this pain you're facing. You can call yourself whatever you want to, but it is not true. It will not stick. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're not going to speak about yourself in that way. And man, is that a word that some of us need to hear. 
because you speak to yourself in ways that are completely contrary to the truth of God's word. You call yourself different names. You say you're no good. You say the Lord's always out against you, and you've missed your core identity in Christ and the hope that you have there. God won't have any of you. He's not, he's not going to allow for it, which takes us to number three. God's providence is not impersonal. When some people hear about God's sovereignty or God's providence, they think about this idea that is kind of a famous illustration from ancient philosophy and ideas that, um, or, or even more modern philosophy, but this idea that God's a watchmaker. He just kind of created things, got it cranked up, got it started, and then he backed away. That's not who God is. God is active and involved and present. Present both through the power of his spirit, but all through, through his people. God's providence is personal in our lives. He comes to us. He meets us right where we are. Number four, God's plans are good and redemptive, but not always immediately evident. Remember how the whole book ends? It ends there in chapter 20, or not chapter 22, but verse 22, with the reference to being in Bethlehem at the barley harvest. Did you know that Naomi and Ruth probably could have never imagined a child was going to be born to them in Bethlehem? And they certainly could have never imagined the child that was going to be born from their family in Bethlehem one day. That God was at work among his people to bring perfect redemption, but it was not immediately evident. And we think about the things that we face in our lives. God is constantly redeeming situations in ways that we are not able to see immediately, that we're not able to recognize completely. He takes us from Moab to Bethlehem. He takes us from famine to harvest. He takes us from loneliness to friendship. He takes us from death to life. He's constantly at work bringing good news out of bad situations. How do we know that? Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, speaking about Joseph's brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, many people be saved. You thought this situation was for evil. God meant it for good. A verse that many of you have memorized, Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In many ways, that's the story of Ruth. Quick caution there. Sometimes we can quote that verse to someone who's hurting, and it comes across and it sounds a little callous, sounds a little shallow. That verse works when you realize that we are talking about a God who comes to us in our pain comes to us in our suffering. That verse only works with the cross, okay? That verse only works with the Savior who came to us, suffered, died, rose again. How do we know that? Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God so he can make propitiation or, or payment for the sins of the people. Look at the end of that. Because he himself was, has suffered when tempted, 
he is able to help those who are being tempted. When you're dealing with pain and suffering and difficulty in your life, or you're dealing with that in the lives of people around you, I don't know how to make sense of that apart from the cross, apart from the fact that we serve a God who has come to us in our pain. He doesn't say, get yourself together and then come to me. He says, I've come to you. And we see that beautifully in the book of Ruth as he comes to the people in their pain, in their hurt. He provides for them, he cares for them, and then he's gonna make a way for salvation, make a way for redemption. The best way I know for us to respond to that this morning is through celebrating the Lord's Supper. In celebrating the Lord's Supper together in this worship, we are reminding ourselves that our salvation, our rescue is possible because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. He has come in flesh and blood to take on that pain, take on that sin, take on that suffering, die for us, and then rise again so we have hope that goes beyond death, that goes beyond pain, that goes beyond suffering. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, what I hope you'll do over the next few minutes, one of the reasons you're not a follower of Jesus might be because you just can't fathom how a God could exist with all the pain and suffering that happens in the world around you. And, and we feel the weight of that. We, we hear what you're saying there. Over the next few minutes, consider, though, what it would be if the God of the universe came into that suffering, took on that pain, and then made a way through it. What would that God be like? What would it look like to worship and follow him? If you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, especially if you're in a difficult situation in life, especially if you're in a place of pain, I pray that you will embrace this time of worship this morning, that God would bring healing and hope into your life as we remember what Christ has done for us. I'm gonna pray for us, and after I pray for us, a group of people are gonna get in place to, to pass the elements. Um, as they come around, grab two cups. We stack the cups together, so grab two cups. You may have to twist them a little bit to get them apart, but grab those cups. Parents, if your kids are not trusted in Jesus for salvation, tell them, hey, we're gonna read the book of Ruth this week. We're not going to participate in this right now. This is about understanding all the story, but we're going to read the book of Ruth together this week, and you can, you can talk them through that. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to continue to worship together this morning. Father, thank you for this incredible story. We've just touched on a piece of it this morning, God, but this incredible story from Scripture. I know I could never do justice fully to all that's going on in the book of Ruth. But God, we do know what it looks like to be in the middle of pain and suffering. We do know what it looks like to live in a chaotic world of sin and moral decline. Frankly, God, we know what it looks like to live in a world where people do whatever is right in their own eyes. We, we understand that idea. But God, we give praise to you because you visit your people, because you provide for your people, because you're in control in a way that goes beyond anything we could ever ask or imagine. God, you are good and you do good things. And we see that goodness at work through the salvation that we have in Christ. That he died for us so that we would have hope and rescue. 
God, help us as a church to celebrate that this morning. God, I pray for people here this morning who maybe don't embrace that idea, don't, don't believe in Jesus as the Savior of the world, but they would think what it is that maybe he did come and take on sin and pain. And God, this morning that their hearts would be open to the beauty and the power of that story. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.